0: Hello and and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm David Breer and in today's show we are going to be asking what do we predict for financial services in 2023? No matter how big or shiny your crystal balls were, were uh, there is no way anybody could predict the sheer chaotic energy that was financial services in 2022. There were down rounds, high profile closures, spicy social media threads, fallouts, truces and even a company that lasted just 28 days. That's That's just half a Liz Truss, isn't it? It's quite sad. So for the opening FinTech Insider of the year, we have put together a panel of 11s to discuss how right or wrong were last year's predictions? I'm guessing pretty wrong. What does our panel predict for this year in financial services? And what does the wider community see happening in 2023? We'll discuss all of this and more in today's show. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere.
1: Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explores series. Videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around. Such as...
0: Non-fungible tokens.
1: Buy now, pay later. The cost of living. ESG. Circular economies.
0: Embedded finance.
1: And inclusive design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now.
0: let's get started today i am joined by a panel of amazing 11s first off i'm joined by kate moody how's it going kate yeah pretty good david how are you doing pretty good pretty good a- any any new year's resolutions you want to share with our listeners is there a bad habit you're trying to get out of your system
1: oh i don't like i don't like resolutions for getting rid of bad habits i like to kind of add add new habits in so i'm a bit torn i think i want to do more baking and get healthier. And I'm not sure those two are compatible, so I think I'm going to have to pick between them, and I think probably I'll go towards the baking. I mean,
0: I think baking for other people, and if you're looking for volunteers, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of 11s in the office that will be up for that one as well. But uh, And speaking yep. of other 11s, we also have Ross Gallagher. How are you doing, Ross? I'm really well, David, thank you. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, any sort of big goals you got lined up for 2023? What's What's on the cards?
2: Oh, gosh. Um, well, you know, we've already got, I mean, so many really cool projects lined up for the new year. I mean, really sort of cutting edge stuff, I think with the potential as well for sort of huge impact.
0: So I guess I'm just looking forward to getting stuck into those really. Look, look at Ross. Trying to talk about stuff without giving away clients' names. Look at you! You're doing I a know. good job there. That's I nice. thought he
1: was talking about his house. Oh no, talking it? about 11FS. Oh, okay. oh. oh yeah, no,
0: no, no, I'm talking about 11FS. It oh. could have been an extension. Could have been either of those things, couldn't it? True. Uh, <laughs> or oh, an extension
2: is a long way off. If anybody
0: gets upset, it was definitely the extension. Yeah. Just, just, just to avoid the complaints. But uh, anyway, thank you both so much for for joining us. Uh, maybe if we start looking about the predictions that were put forward for for last year's. Uh, views of of really where we would get to. I know we sat down on, uh, I think it was podcast episode 593, according to the notes, um, and actually outlined a few things. One of them was, so they outlined 2022, we will see the rise of the global south, uh, 2022, we will see variable reoccurring payments sign to the critics on Open Banking. Uh, and finally, 2022, we will see more direct-to-consumer fintech targeting more specific audiences. So uh, maybe if we start at the top of it, was 2022 a good year for the Global South? Uh, what do you guys think? Global South like, sounds like some sort of you know, uh, clothing brand, doesn't it? Rather than necessarily a prediction in that sense. But uh, Kate, what do you think? Was it was it a good year for the South?
1: I mean, I think it was definitely a better year for the South than the North, given given the way things went. And I, I like how widely we cast our net there, the global South. I mean, I think you probably need to break it down a little bit more than that. You know, I think you know, on. Balance. My understanding, I think, is the you know, African fintech fundraising. I think was just about higher in 2022 than 2021. I think mainly driven by the the first half of the year. But you know, I think that was the only continent where we saw you know, year on year growth. Um, but we've seen some amazing stuff in in LATAM as well, um, both in terms of fundraising, but also the established players consolidating. So you know, new bank produce some really, really good revenue numbers. They're continuing to do amazing things. Um and we've seen, you know, a lot of interesting uh, raises, some really, really exciting unicorns from Ecuador through to um Story in Mexico and Walla in Argentina. So lots of really, really exciting players. And I feel like we had a stage in the shows this year where every time I came on, we were talking about a, a raise, an exciting raise in, in Latam. So definitely been been exciting in, in those parts of the world for sure. And I think they've taken less of a hit than we've seen in 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 the northern hemisphere for sure but whether that'll continue into into next year we'll have to wait and see
0: it's interesting isn't it I mean, you you reference newbank in there I mean newbank have really become the the case study globally for you know disrupting the incumbents in that space but actually sort of growing the pie in the region as well right you know the the amount of people that have come into banking because of somebody like newbank is is phenomenal, isn't it? So it's uh, it is amazing when the the biggest stories are sort of uh, south of the equator in that way as well. Yeah,
1: absolutely, and it's it's awesome to see.
0: What do you think, Ross? Well, they're just they're such a sort of global success story, right?
2: I mean, I know they're obviously a sort of like a local and a regional success story, but you know, by market capitalization, they're one of the biggest uh, one of the biggest fintechs in the world. They've now got over seventy million customers. I think they added five million in Q three this year alone, which just blows my mind right i mean their their q3 profits this year were were double what they were in the same quarter last year and and you know they're also now present in brazil mexico colombia and actually they're one of the the largest financial institutions in latam as a region by by active customers so i mean and you have to put all of that in the context of the rising cost of living and the fact that like so few neobanks globally are actually profitable i mean when you look at some of those key performance metrics they're absolutely knocking it out of the park
0: definitely uh, one organization that didn't go so well in the the Global South is is referred to as Paytm, though. So Paytm has lost more than 75% of its market value since listing. This was the world's biggest single year tumble among large IPOs in the last decade. That's that's pretty terrifying. Is that uh, a sign potentially that the the valuations that a lot of these organizations are creating. And I wouldn't say this is just a, a South thing, but you know, FinTech more broadly, I think this year maybe just became a little bit more, a little bit more rational potentially.
2: Yeah, I think there's a there's a sort of renewed focus from an investor perspective on profitability now, right? I think we've sort of largely run out of road on the sort of like growth at all costs and investors and VCs are just gonna keep pumping money into these FinTechs. Um, so I think it's a reflection of the fact that they haven't hit profitability. I think what I would say, though, is um, the the fundamentals, I think, are are still there, right? I think their active customer base continues to grow. Their Q3 revenues were also up again significantly on the, the same time last year. So I think the
0: fundamentals are there, but I just think investment appetite is shifting. It's quite weird when we have to say investors are starting to look for returns like it just seems <laughs> seems like such a crazy thing to say doesn't it but uh I, I mean kate to sort of build on your point about you know the global south it sort of feels like that sort of other category doesn't it that everybody sort of it's like yeah like the us and like europe and like everywhere else you know like but actually i mean some of the the geos that we're referring to are, are huge and actually the the differences in terms of the the uh the economic sort of climate, but also the the customers' requirements across these geographies are are fundamentally it, it almost feels like somebody should do like, you know, specific podcasts on those regions potentially, like foreshadowing he says. But uh, some news on that to come shortly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, I could and I suppose my main hope almost for twenty twenty three is that we stop, as you say, having that almost like you know, the established Western world and then everywhere else mentality sort of implicit in in everything we're doing. And I think twenty twenty one was like a boom year. Globally, like particularly for those those southern markets, they've held their own strongly in 2022 in difficult conditions. So, you know, they are now just as entitled to be driving the news agenda, driving the fintech agenda in their own rights. So, you know, obviously we had the UK and the US doing various things, but like these markets now deserve just as much focus. And I'm sure we'll be doing that as, as 11FS in, in 2023, but everyone else should be doing that as well.
2: Yeah, I think like um, going back to the point on on India as an example, I think where we're starting to see as well some really cool innovation in some of these markets is actually at like the infrastructure level. You know, when you look at what India's done with like its unified payments interface, I think that's pretty much world leading, right? So it's driving more people to sort of digital, it's like reducing their reliance on cash. It feels like a lot of these countries in terms of like digital innovation, they're actually sort of leapfrogging. They're bringing a lot more people into financial services through these sort of digital services. And so I guess just sort of throwing that out there, just to sort of reinforce my point about like fundamentally, I think these guys are um, coming on leaps and bounds really and, and having some huge results.
0: Definitely,
1: and the pick network in Brazil is absolutely insane. Like the uptake of that has been absolutely phenomenal. So yeah, completely agree. Like these, it's not just about fintechs; it's about infrastructure as well, and and the regulators as well. Like we we always try and talk about regulators, and I suppose for me that's been one nuance. I think for like the likes of Paytm have started to have some more regulatory hurdles in India. I think the Reserve Bank of India has kind of been playing around with them a little bit in terms of their licensing. I think we've seen similar things in Africa with, you know, a wave and um cash having issues in Kenya. So I suppose these fintechs have continued to grow, but have therefore inevitably almost hit that growing pain of, of having to realign themselves with the regulators and, and try and find that, that new standing. So, yeah, really interesting. Speaking of
0: regulation, one of the uh, actual predictions that we had was about variable, recurring payments uh, proving a bit of a game changer for for actually what we suspect will be a you know a, a real step forward when it comes to open banking and open finance more broadly. In fact, actually, we sort of put our not only our our mouth where our money is. We literally put an award where our mouth is on that one when it comes to the, the 11FS awards giving OBIE the most progressive regulation when it came to VRP. Um, but I wouldn't say it's quite torn away with the the changes that, at least in terms of the the consumer-facing view of that. Um, I would definitely say when it comes to the impact that it can have or it has the ability to, definitely we've got more Lego blocks to play with now in terms of sort of building these things. But what do you guys think? I, I don't think this is something that has... Uh, really caught fire yet. But equally, I'm not sure it really has the same level of potential to catch fire globally as well. You know, implementing reoccurring payments across the uh, different geos, you know, uh, internationally would be, I think, a much harder task than just the basics of of really where open banking started. Uh, Kate, what do you think?
1: Yeah, no, I I definitely agree with you in terms of not seeing the impact from a customer perspective yet. I mean, I think you should Never underestimate how difficult it is to push these regulations through, and I completely agree that you know the work that the ABIE has done to get to this point is amazing. Um, and I think it was brilliant to see. I think in July this year we saw you know, the big UK banks being mandated to push on with that um, sweeping element of the VRP. So I'm not a I'm a customer nerd, not a not a payments nerd, but my my understanding is that you know, the VRP stuff sw- you know, split into the non-sweeping functionality, which from what I can understood seem to be more beneficial really for banks and businesses and kind of increasing the security and the reliability of those payments. Um, Whereas it's the sweeping functionality, which I think has huge potential implications for customers. Um, Maybe we'll touch on it as we get to some of these other topics. But yeah, I'm glad that's been mandated. But yeah, I suppose to echo you, David, like a little bit disappointed that we've not actually seen stuff come through. I went onto my banking app Just before we started recording, I can't see anything in there which looks any different in terms of the payment options that are being encouraged for me to use, so... Yeah, still a long way to go.
0: Well, I'm I'm still going into my overdraft and not realizing it. Like so, until they stop that happening, then maybe they're not using it properly. But um, Helen Child, actually the OBE founder, said without a doubt, VRPs are the largest single step forward for open banking since the first payment APIs were launched. So you know the industry is definitely looking at this one, Ross, with a uh, an expectation that it will bring about significant change.
2: Yeah, I agree. I agree, and I think you know it does feel like it has true transformative potential, right? When it, At least when it comes to sort of open banking payments and really sort of challenging those more established payment methods such as cards and direct debits. And I think that's all about the experience that it delivers for consumers, that being like one click or almost zero click, like super seamless. But I think obviously we have to sort of move beyond that sort of sweeping functionality that we're seeing today. Where does it go from there in terms of what are some of those more maybe sophisticated use cases. But the reality as well is this is a new payment method, right? A new payment method needs, they need clear rules and regulations around managing liability and fraud and commercial disputes and consumer protections and all of that sort of stuff, right? So all of that obviously has to be worked out. Um, I think once we've sort of laid the track, as far as all of that sort of stuff is concerned is where we are going to see this actually catch fire, like you said.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, particularly on that one, as my example, like the thing that has to change is business model. And, uh, you know, just because they can do it doesn't mean they will. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens on that one. The the last prediction that we had was um, whether we would see more consumer fintech focused on specific niches. I mean, obviously, in the past, we've seen LBGTQ, Focus, Neobank, Daylight, um, raise a bunch of money and and, and scale uh, from a customer's perspective. We've seen Greenwoods, the digital bank startup for Black and Latino people and business owners, uh, closing out further funding. But it hasn't gone that well for all of these. I mean, I mean, I'm not sure you would put uh, specific niches in the anti-woke sentiment, but uh, Glorify announced it was closing down just three months after its launch. So it turns out there isn't profitability or opportunity in every niche potentially. Um, That Bernard Manning bank probably will never catch on. It's a very specific niche in that one, isn't it? But uh, maybe not all of them need financial services specifically for them, hey?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think people sometimes see like banking for niches as being a bit of a like cliche almost or it's just kind of like a a bit of a quirk but actually I I think about it more as you know we're just reaching a stage of financial services where not obviously profitable customer groups are starting to be focused on like these aren't audiences that mainstream banks were interested in and now we're at a point where your fintechs are actually saying, you know what, with the innovations we've seen in embedded finance, in banking as a service, like actually the cost to serve these customers means that we can offer them offer them services that we couldn't before. And so for me, it's, re- it's really important.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think it's, you know, particularly the point you make about cost, actually now there is a an opportunity to serve every different slice of customers. But increasingly, this sort of bespoke service is much more, possible than ever before you know so actually rather than just homogenized generic banking then actually things that solve real people's problems within niches eminently deliverable in a digital world isn't it right well so transitioning us from last year to this year then uh, maybe if we start with you Kate what do you think is going to happen I mean there's loads of change in the market isn't there but where do you see us going what's your big prediction
1: so My big prediction is that 2023, we'll see innovation around the unhappy paths of fintech. So given the current economic crisis, as well as the adoption levels that we now see for buy now, pay later, I think we're going to need to see innovation around debt management and and debt collection in particular. So I think that's going to be a real theme for this year.
0: Interesting. And and is that, do you think that's off the back of years of just focusing on the happy path and now people are getting around to the the tails of this or or are you thinking more broadly that it isn't that sort of completionist sense it's more you know dealing with a lot more of the edge cases in that way
1: i think i think it's a bit of a bit of both right like understandably there was a huge amount of work that has needed to be done just to take kind of as you say that that happier path of of banking and and bring it up to standard you know bring it into a truly digital world um so we've had huge amounts of of innovation and change and progress there obviously you know still tons more to do but what we're now seeing is that we've built these seamless smooth journeys that make it much easier for people to spend much easier for people to access credit what we've not seen is that kind of connected circle of how you then help people pay that money back or add to your point david you're still going into overdraft so we're still stuff for us to fix to make sure that people us are, are staying staying out of the red, um, and I think given the the cost of living crisis, and we've already seen you know, huge trends towards people increasing their usage of buying our pay later, increasing their usage of credit. You know, we need to find ways to help people manage that better in in the digital world, and that that's got to change. I, I don't think it's going to change by choice because you know, it's not a sexy thing to be working in. Like, nobody necessarily wants to be designing this stuff and building this stuff. But I I think we're reaching the stage now where it's becoming essential.
0: Mm. I mean, it's, it's probably an oddly profitable part of financial services as well, because, I mean, Prime, anybody who takes out loans and pays them back are not great customers when you're a bank in terms of your business model. But actually, people consolidating debt and looking for opportunities to help, sort of climb their way out of that you know building a credit score as they're doing it or you know being in a situation where you're avoiding defaults i mean actually it's a nobody wants to be a digital debt collector like you say kate but actually there is a a a very uh a good way of solving a lot of you know real problems for people in in that way um i mean it's an interesting one as well i i i do wonder whether you sort of see fintech founders as the sort of we're going to change the world of whatever, you know. But actually, in that sense, that that sort of messy back office, the messy part of banking more broadly, will it attract the same type of, you know, vigour, or will people jump out of bed every day to go and solve those problems? I, I guess it's on really how you tell the story, isn't it?
2: I think I think that's such an interesting point, because I think when you look at it, you know, you go into, you know, you become a fintech f- founder, and you, you get into that kind of thing to solve for, real problems, right? So I think the temptation is to design the the tools and give consumers those tools to prevent them from getting there in the first place, right, where they're in a sort of situation where that debt needs to be managed. I think to Kate's point, though, the reality is that, you know, we have to deal with the problem in front of us, right? And through a combination of maybe um, poor financial literacy, poor market conditions, The reality is that I think that the problem with debt, the problem with problem debt is already really acute. So I think that problem needs to be solved for. Somebody has to do it. I mean, um, credit, short-term credit balances, credit card balances, they're already higher than they were as we were heading into the last financial crisis. Default rates in the US are already rising at record rates. So I agree, this
0: this is a really acute problem
2: that's right in front of us and it needs to be addressed.
0: It's an interesting one, isn't it? And um, set for the second time in the podcast, we won't mention any names, Kate, on this one. But we were, me, myself and Kate were talking to a client about this in a, a workshop a couple of weeks ago. You know, you talk about financial education. My point was, is like the internet exists. Like if people want to educate themselves, there's, there's every piece of information out there that can actually help them. You know, waiting until there's a crisis to then try and figure that out. You know, you're in so much debt or you've don't, you know, you're about to retire and you start thinking about these things, it's probably too late, you know? So I'm not sure uh, in, in that sense, whose responsibility is it to educate the public on actually what being responsible or being good at financial services actually is because, you know, back to my point earlier on, a customer who pays back all of their debt ain't a good customer if you're a bank. You know, the customer who pays back a little bit and but stays in debt but can afford it, but you know, that cycle continues, that's a good customer from a bank's perspective. So I mean is it is it the is it my duty to educate myself? Is it the government's duty to educate? Is it parents? It, like whose whose responsibility is this?
1: I mean, I I don't think I think individuals are always responsible ultimately for their own financial affairs. But I think the financial services sector is responsible for dealing with the repercussions of its own innovations to some degree. Right. I mean, we've allowed a buy now, pay later sector to rise and grow, which has enabled people more than ever to have pockets of debt in loads of different places. Like it was already hard enough to keep track of your utilities bill and your phone bill and your mortgage. Add in, you know pockets of debt across five different buy now pay later platforms and your overdraft, it's just not manageable. So I think that's that's where I think the financial services industry has responsibility to say, look, we've created an environment where we've removed the friction, made it possible for people to access credit in new ways and i think you know that's not really something that a customer can solve for in an efficient way like sure we've got spreadsheets we've got notepads but you know there's stuff that we can do as an industry to make that better there's a technology there to help people have that picture to see their where they have credit what they should repay and what order you know, we can help people make those decisions and so people are responsible for themselves but we can give them tools to make it easier to take responsibility for yourself
2: yeah i i think that's that's such a such an important point and actually We had to put forward a couple of predictions for this show, and that was kind of my other one that didn't make the cut. But it does feel like, you know, where we are now, more than ever, facing into the sort of really difficult economic situation, consumers need sort of like more sophisticated tools that give them sort of better visibility, better control, and actually a little bit of sort of coaching and insights um, to help them build those better financial behaviours. And I really do hope that actually the industry sort of rises to that challenge in 2023. I think the other thing then that I find really interesting in this context is the emergence of like, save now, pay later propositions, things like accrue savings. David, you you shared something actually um, not too long ago that uh, really sort of stuck with me about the only acceptable form of credit is a, is a mortgage, right? And anything else is sort of impatience, I think was how you phrased it. A lot of people showered at me for that one. I had to clarify it quite a lot. No, but... for sure, right? <laughs> And it's it's an antagonistic position to take, but it serves its purpose, right? But I think at the end of the day, we still need some compelling sort of offerings to actually encourage people to rethink their relationship with debt. And something like a a, a save now, pay later proposition, I think, starts for me to go
0: some way towards doing that. Definitely, yeah. Uh, Ross, how about yourself? There was a uh, I had a good read through you. Big prediction for for twenty twenty three.
2: Yeah, listen, it's uh, it's bold. It's intentionally bold. Um, So 2023, we'll see instant access to tailored credit finally become more commonplace for SMEs. So we know that SMEs have been radically underserved for far too long um, by high street lenders and by everybody else, right? I think they've just struggled to design meaningful propositions for what is a really diverse um, segment. Um, One of the things that's always stuck with me Uh, was a conversation I had actually with uh, Rishi Khosla, the co-founder of uh, Oak North. And he told me that one of the the sort of driving factors in them starting Oak North was realizing that SMEs often had to wait up to six months just to get rejected for credit from those high street lenders. Um, And I think now we're starting to see some SME focused challengers emerge and actually start to plug this gap. So I'm hoping in 2023 that continues. Yeah,
0: I mean, I guess you know, cost of living is is one thing, but the uh, you know cost of running a business ain't going down any anytime soon either. So actually, as you say, the the lending or the access to capital more broadly, I mean, it's it's a sad reality that we're s- sort of still having these conversations. I mean, the three of us have all been involved in podcasts where we've talked about you know, particularly for the UK market, the you know the disbursement of I think it was like 860 million of the uh rbs's funds to to increase competition in that market i mean man like for 860 you could have given every every one of those SMEs some money rather than spending it on those things because really we haven't seen the wholesale change in the market yet um but hopefully those seeds will grow as you say in 23 ross so uh, kate what do you think on this one it it would be transformative for those those organizations to gain access to funds when they actually needed it but what do you think
1: yeah, I suppose, I mean, I think, um, I think you're definitely right, Ross, like there's still a huge amount of change that needs to happen. I suppose I see it as, I mean, there's such, SME covers like such a broad spectrum, right? I, and I think we have seen some really cool stuff happen at the bottom end of that kind of smallest end. You know, if you look at the likes of, you know, what Square are doing, what Shopify are doing, I think we had you know, the guys from Wayfly on the podcast this year, you know, that e-commerce focus, like I think in that small digital business we have seen some some lending decision solutions that that are starting to deliver things faster and to kind of come up with more customized repayment schedules and repayment plans things like that but i think the area that is still generally yeah is is underserved is that larger business, that scaling SME, that kind of medium space in the market, I think there's still a huge need for for change and innovation there. I mean I was interested to see you know, obviously I think it was towards the tail end of 2021 that Oak North acquired Fluidly. Um I've not seen I mean obviously like Fluidly's website now says like part of Oak North on the bottom, but I've I've not seen them like leverage that in the way that I was almost—I was expecting them to. Um, I don't know if I was expecting them to do a bit more of that partnership. I thought Fluidly had some really, really amazing claimed sort of potential in, in its software. Um, you know that kind of cash flow forecasting, which is really kind of when cash flow and lending always, I think, need to sit side by side. So the the acquisition made sense, but I, I was intrigued to see whether Oak North would do, do a bit more with it. So maybe, maybe that's still to come. I don't know. Maybe you can ask Rishi about that next time you speak to him, Ross
2: yeah and well I think it's a I think it's a really interesting one because I think we're starting to see we've talked about this already earlier on in the show maybe VC investment um starting to slow down in some of the fintechs that we're seeing on the sort of retail consumer side but like you said that acquisition um alica bank I think have recently raised a hundred million um in 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 funding and I think it shows that actually there really is still huge untapped potential in this space I think VC's recognize that. I think there's huge opportunity. I agree that there's still a huge amount to do. Um, and I think actually, it's not necessarily going to be the banks that solve for this problem. I think it's a lot now actually of the sort of alternative providers that really understand business's cash flow, right? Because it's people like payment providers, it's people that actually can see what's going through the till. I think it's like Logistics networks that really have a view of your sort of supply chain and actually, you know, can can start to understand that in a little bit more detail and start offering services like Merchant Advance, you know, that really have that sort of behavioural data. They can actually start to quickly and accurately understand risk, and we're starting to see like lots of really cool examples. I mean, Kate, you obviously mentioned the the Stripe and Shopify partnership. I think that's a big one, but then we're seeing, you know, something like Shop Top Up, which is giving Grocers cash advances to buy stock, and we're seeing like Molly, which is the Dutch payments provider, they've now launched a feature this year where it uses sales data to assess affordability and actually now can provide off the base off the back of that same day access to funds and it's you know it's accounting providers, it's payroll providers. like I feel like people are actually starting to converge on this space, which is why I actually feel like we're not necessarily reaching a tipping point, but I think things are going to improve.
1: What do you think um, the impact of buy now, pay later is going to be in, in this space? Obviously, we've seen a huge uptake in the kind of retail space, but we've also seen lots of fintechs coming out this year, focusing on, on corporate or business buy now, pay later.
2: No, 100%. And, and some really interesting sort of bespoke, almost niche, to go back to what we talked about earlier in the show, um, propositions like offering sort of um, rural farmers like buy now, pay at harvest, and all those sorts of things, right? And I think, look, you know, it's very similar to um, how it is in the consumer world. I think done, done correctly with the right sort of controls and safeguards in place, huge transformative potential. I think embedded finance in this space actually just has so much potential to just extend those services to sort of corners of small businesses that have typically been excluded.
0: But well, that is the
2: caveat, right? It has to be done in the right way.
0: Yeah, I think I think anything in that sense. I mean, cash flow, whether you're a business or whether you're a, a human, you know, just a normal, regular human walking around the street. I mean, that there can always be used effectively, can't they, to smooth those things through? Whether it's buy net, pay later or credit cards or whatever. I guess the challenge comes when those things all fall the wrong side. You know, something doesn't quite come in in the way that it's expected, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why people can kind of get in a pinch. And that usually is the point where people need lending most to kind of get them out of a hole. But uh, arguably, they're usually at the point where they're the worst risk profile in, in that way as well. So it is it is an interesting one to kind of look at. But I mean, uh, increasingly, and then again, I know many rooms we've all sort of talked about this one, but the the increasing sort of sophistication of individuals is very much akin to SMEs uh, in the same way as wealth is very much akin to a, a corporate business in that sense, in terms of all the complexities that go with it. So, I think the the thing we keep sort of coming back to and hitting on here really is that financial services isn't just dumb products; it's like a whole service. It's a system around people, um, and the more intelligent those things can be, the the better served those customers are likely to be as well.
2: That's that's exactly it, and I, I guess I go back to. Kate's um, point on this earlier, which is SME, is a really, really broad term, and you know it's everything from like sole proprietors right through to businesses with a few hundred employees, and so the spectrum of challenges that those businesses face, you know, there's almost like a unique challenge per SME. There's as many challenges as there are SMEs, and I'd actually argue that, touching on your human point, David. SMEs were some of the biggest losers when we moved from sort of that like in branch analog experience where you had a relationship manager that probably understood your business through to sort of like this digitized self-serve generic business rules. They lost out to all of that. And I think a question I've often thought about is, is there a way to bring the sort of human back in, right? Combine the human with the technology to actually you know, use technology as enabler to great service, use humans to intervene where you need to, rather than where we seem to be at the minute, which is technology's just been used as like a wedge. It's created this sort of service gap between um, those businesses and their, their financial services provider.
1: It always seems, it's always one of the most interesting things for me, like whenever we're doing projects, when we're speaking to SMEs or interviewing SMEs, like the, one of the biggest decisions that they quite often seem to have to make as they grow is at what point they hire a CFO you know, at what point do you kind of believe as a business that you can justify an individual that isn't just about like money and money out but is about strategically managing the finances of your business and, and we often sort of have that as a challenge for ourselves when we're designing new solutions it's like what is that what is it that a CFO does that we should be trying to give um companies to to earlier but access to earlier but um it's very, very hard. It's very, very hard to, to take that human take that human out. Um and I almost wonder if you know, maybe we need to stop trying to take humans out, but you know, to the point of like how do you how do you try and make humans more scalable? Like what is the technology and support that you could give to humans to make them more more scalable. Maybe one CFO could work with five businesses rather than one, and then you don't have to pay as much for them. Like I, th- I think that's where we should be getting to with, with innovation this year. Is not just trying to take humans out, but trying to make them more scalable as well.
0: Definitely, yeah, I completely agree with that. On that note, we're just going to take a quick pause here. Back with you very shortly. Embedded banking and banking as a service business models open up a world of opportunities for banks, but they also present plenty of challenges along the way. In our latest report. In partnership with Infosys Finical, we unpack the growth and revenue opportunities for banks, take a look at the brands that are already making headway by embedding banking into the context of customer journeys, and address the challenges that banks and brands need to overcome to deliver embedded banking successfully. Find out more and download
1: your copy at content.11fs.com. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider, Watch Insider, 11FS Spotlight, 11FS Explores,
0: Open Mic Night, After Dark.
1: Through our podcasts,
0: videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11FS.com or visit 11FS.com to find out more. Long live the community. So, so my prediction was was actually about technology. So, uh, but but I actually think it's it's sort of the the finally from from my perspective. So, my my prediction was twenty twenty three will see big banks finally face into their core system issues because I think we've had many sort of false dawns of this to a certain degree. We've seen different organizations try and patch things up in different ways and then you see a you know naming no names but them defaulting back to the the way that they've done it before with a you know big contract extension because somebody plays golf with somebody or whatever you know um but actually the reality of it and i I, to be honest this isn't really a me looking at my crystal ball and, and sort of gazing in it this is literally just down to like everybody i talk to is facing into solving these problems like whether you're a cio ceo cto or whatever they are all facing into the only way we really push our organization forward is by fundamentally changing the technological capability of the organization and i don't think it's technology for technology's sake because i'm quite uh, i always kind of like to go but why like why are you actually doing this it's not just to make it cheaper it's to fundamentally operate in a different way um, the the amount of organizations that I talk to who uh, have you know deployed a agile project uh, at you know agile at scale and paid McKinsey 100 whatever to do something crazy and then actually what you realize is that without the technology to operate in a different way what you're doing is prototyping quickly um, So I really think now we're seeing you know many people partner with you know great organizations like thought machine to to put in place, different technology stacks. You know, obviously this sort of started with players like Mox that uh, we worked on and the, the ability for them to then launch and deploy things quickly is a game changer for the way in which you operate as an organization. Um, but increasingly, we're seeing, you know, JP Morgan Chase and, uh, you know, Westpac and very large organizations around the world commit to fundamentally changing their core infrastructure. And that's not just core banking, that's cloud as well. Uh, and I think we're really reaching a, a tipping point for, for really, you know, all of the legacy technology that has been a, an excuse to not do anything for a decade um, disappearing in front of our eyes over the next couple of years. What do you guys think?
1: Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I was actually, you know, I was speaking to a client who, again, will remain, will remain nameless, not that not that long ago, and you know, they were just talking about how the, as you say, like the landscape has has changed, and you know, they were you know, they had to make some big you know, technology, technology provider decisions you know, five six years ago, and they just said to you know, at this at that point in time, I could not credibly go to my board. And and make the case for a thought machine or a mamboo or a 10-x. Maybe they didn't even exist at that point in time anyway, but these these players just didn't have the the scale and the credibility to overcome those those doubts, to overcome those golf club friendships, you know, but that has changed. That is that is that is just not true anymore. Um and so you know, now the contract now the contracts are expiring and they are now in a position to make different decisions and I guess, yeah, to your the point of your prediction, David, hopefully. You'll prove right. And 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 when they make the decisions now, they'll they'll have more options and have more genuine choice. Um, but it just feels like yeah, there's fundamentally been been a change and and those those I mean, whether you call them excuses or barriers to entry, like however you label them, like whatever it was that held these banks back has has, has shifted. And it's funny
0: because so much of them getting to the right answer from a technology perspective has got nothing to do with technology in any way, shape or form. But just the changing Sort of tone in big bank procurement departments of the way in which they're procuring things is fundamentally different as well. To your to your point, Kate, you know, there's no way a you know a, an organisation that you know only existed you know five years ago would have been considered for a twenty year deal to put bank you know core infrastructure on. So, but actually now that there's enough reference cases and enough momentum, and actually if I'm honest with you, enough disappointment in the old guard. I mean, we literally saw Temenos's. Uh, Borden and uh, uh, and co sort of come out and ask for the firing of their CEO. I mean the 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 current crop is in sort of disarray to a certain degree, meaning there is huge opportunities for those players to. I won't even call them new players, but the players that have been around for long enough to to have earned their stripes and and really now make these things happen. But um, Ross, what do you think? Is that a is that a theme that you think we'll uh, will finally get to in in 23?
2: Well, it's an interesting one. I think when I uh, when I read your prediction in our show notes, I thought, oh, yeah, it's, it's bold. Because, I mean, we've been talking about the issues with legacy core technologies now for a long time, right? Um, and I, I'm i sitting here and I'm listening to you and Kate. And, I mean, what you're describing, I think, really speaks to a pretty, a pretty significant fundamental cultural shift in these organizations, right? The fact that procurement are willing to take these types of um, – conversation seriously that at the sort of decision-making level of these big banks, again, likewise. But I suppose my question or my pushback is, is acquiring thought machine or equivalent enough, right? And then going back to your point um, just now, David, the, the problems are rarely, or, you know, it's not always technological. So I guess what are some of those Barriers that still exist within those organisations that are inevitably going to make this harder. Is it talent? Is it org structure? Is it politics? What's going to prevent this from happening?
0: Yeah, it's a good good point. And I've you know I've seen I've seen people make the right vendor selection processes, but still fail miserably. You know, essentially, I mean the 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 uh, industry is a wash of big banks building small banks like big banks, you know, and actually, if that um, you can make all the right vendor pieces, but if you put the pieces together wrong, you're still going to end up with the wrong outcome, right? So, um, so I, I think actually, you know, when I, when I say core systems, I just don't mean core banking. I do mean, you know, below that with cloud infrastructure and actually everything that leads to a a way of operating that's different, a different rhythm for the organization. Because I think the, the challenge that the organizations that you know, we see really have is that if change is always really large, then actually it's always risky. Uh, and if it's risky, then actually there's always a bunch of people that would say no. Whereas actually, if you can atomize change and make everything small and everything uh, incremental, well, then you can you can de-risk the entirety of your organization by adopting a new operating model. And for me, that's the thing that really, I think, is absolutely transformational because technology is, is transient, you know, you've got to, it isn't a project, it's a, a kind of a way of living, you've got to continually evolve those things. But actually, if your operating model it has the ability to test and learn and and really scale that effectively across the the whole company, that's just a completely different industry that we're working in. I think at that point, I think we'll have to put this podcast on to like five days a week, just the amount of change that will be happening in the industry at that point, which will be very exciting. But we'll never get anything done as well. But uh, all right, on that note, we better wrap this up though, because uh, there were some pretty big big you know sort of predictions there that i think uh, we came up with but but there were f- quite a few predictions that came from the community as well so uh, these were sent both uh 11fs and fintech insider across twitter instagram and linkedin uh, and if i go through a few of these you guys can say yes or no whether you think this will be a, a hit or a miss so uh mike larry said uh, tweeted mike larry isn't that the dude from bad boys like uh if that if he if he's a full time listener I'll be quite impressed on that one but uh, uh, he tweeted robo advice powered by Chat GPT what do you what do you reckon Kate do you reckon that is a uh, do you reckon that is a good one I mean I'm not sure where the liability lies there in that one
1: well that's it yeah I was going to say I mean I've seen some of the stuff from Chat GPT it's it's great but will it be will it be regulated mm, I'm going to say no
2: yeah what do you reckon Ross I mean I don't know that. I don't think uh, Robo Advice can get any worse, so I'm going to go. Why not? <laughs> All Let's right. try it.
0: Uh, uh, Denaro Lee commented: "Privacy as a service and crypto asset management as a service. Privacy as a service—that sounds like bodyguards. Like, um, what, what are you? What are you guys thinking? Yes or no on these two? Okay. Well,
1: oh, I think privacy as a service. Oh, he's right. I would have said yes if you would asked me last year, but then Apple have, have kind of like really stepped into that space and are really trying to kind of disrupt that and just sort of." Um, change that. I don't know, crypto asset management as a service. Yeah, I, th- I think we're going to continue seeing innovations in crypto, so yeah.
0: All right, Ross, what do you think? Yay or nay? Um,
2: yeah, I, I agree on crypto asset management as a service. I also actually agree on privacy as a service. And I think when you look at things like the variable recurring payments, where it's kind of tokenizing that account information, you're not sharing it, maybe it's less relevant in that context.
0: Yeah, I think, I think on that one particularly, I think if we sort of start to see it as like pure identity, you know, and and wrapping privacy around those things, then, I mean, I'd love to see that happen. I'm not sure it'll happen in 23, though. All right, Uh, Karuna Araya earned wage access and revenue-based financing will become mainstream in Asia. Um, I think definitely on the earn wage, wage access. I think this is a thing that's just rippled out everywhere, isn't it, in terms of press this button and then sort of cash out now, jackpot style. But uh, what do you guys reckon, Ross? Uh, maybe you on first on this one. Earn wage access and revenue-based financing will become mainstream in Asia. What do you think?
2: Yeah, and I, look, I think, I think mainstream more generally. And then when you start to think about, you know, streaming your salary and all of that sort of stuff that you can enable in a sort of web three context i think potentially huge revenue-based financing i guess ties back to my prediction a little bit um fingers crossed
0: i absolutely hope so but we have to get the model right yeah good Kate. yep i think it's gonna happen nice i love the certainty in that as well you're like yeah this one's definitely gonna happen
1: as you say unwage access is already happening and revenue-based financing yeah but that deserves to happen so yeah that should happen
0: Okie dokie. Uh, lastly, Mike Costello uh, commented on LinkedIn, someone will say embedded insurance one too many times and I will throw my laptop out of the window. Well, thankfully, it was the first time we mentioned it on the podcast and nobody, no laptops were hurt making this one, which is, uh, which is good. All right, folks, that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you so much for joining me. Where can people learn a little bit more about you and what you're up to? Kate.
1: Well, we're obviously not allowed to talk about the confidential stuff we're up to, but you can find us chatting about the world of fintech in general or on LinkedIn, um, Kate Moody on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Kate Moody. Very
0: good. I feel this podcast has become like, pst, guess what I've heard? Like, I feel like we should do that. The, the <laughs> secrets we've heard on the streets type vibe. Anyway, Ross, where can people learn a little bit more about you?
2: Yeah, listen, likewise, uh, Ross Gallagher on LinkedIn or at Ross Gallagher07 on Twitter.
0: Very good. Uh, I'm always lurking on LinkedIn these days. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us make it better and helps other people find the show as well. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on all social medias. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email us on podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Goodbye.